So as we come to this first week of Epiphany, this morning three threads are coming together in our worship. The first is Epiphany. In common usage, you know, somebody will use the word Epiphany to mean something like a moment of sudden or great revelation that, you know, somehow changes you in some way, right? Like if somebody says, I had an Epiphany. It means like you saw something brand new that somehow changes you or you saw something from a different angle that somehow changes you. And the season of epiphany in the church is that season in which Christ is revealed. Uh, Christ is made manifest to the world and the world sees it and has its own moment of epiphany. This year in the six weeks of epiphany, we're going to be, this is the second thing, we're going to be doing a series in the letter of Paul uh, to Philippi. And I do this a couple times a year, do a book study, because I want to just gently remind us and everybody else who hears these podcasts and just, you know, everybody who we influence, that the Bible remains important. Uh, It's not that important in culture anymore. It's um, oftentimes actually thought to be this archaic, bullying, arbitrary thing that, you know, what does this ancient text have anything to do with modern technological life? And I just think there's something too. occasionally you just sitting. And if you want to start reading your Bibles the next six weeks, you're welcome to do so. Uh, remember when you used to come to church with your Bibles and have them in your laps and we would, you know, actually look at the Bible together. You're welcome to do that or you're welcome to look at it uh, in your order for worship. But I think it's sometimes important to just, in a sense, um, gently, sweetly, humbly, in a sense, just sort of sit under the text and let the text speak to us however it might speak to us. And then thirdly, a little, uh, another little added wonderful touch this morning will be in a few moments, the baptism of uh, Shepherd Stone Goodman. And so these three things are all coming together this morning in our worship. And I wanna try to bring them together in this Epiphany Sunday under this idea, how the revelation of God creates a human self. And so if you look at first one, we get our first hint about this, where Paul, in this sort of typical address, includes Timothy and says that we are servants of Christ Jesus. And it's noteworthy because this is one of the rare places that Paul doesn't describe himself as an apostle. But rather in this case, he links himself with Timothy, saying that his sense of his self is that he's a loving servant that he's someone who belongs to another. In this case, of course, he belongs to Jesus. And this is a statement for Paul, and we could take it on for ourselves if we wanted, of the total claim that Jesus makes on one life. For Paul, it's a statement of humility and subordination, of self-emptying. And we see this little glimpse into Paul's heart that this is his essential sense of himself, that he's a servant that he's not merely his function as an apostle. Like, honestly, unless something in my day forces me to it, I very rarely think of myself as a bishop who wears certain kinds of clothes for certain sorts of occasions. Far more frequently, a thousand times more frequently, my sense of myself is that I'm a follower of Jesus and that I'm his servant. And one of the functions I happen to do is be a bishop. But I have lots of other functions of husband and father and friend, and professor, and author, and lots of other things. And my sense, when I give myself to those various tasks or functions, my sense of being able to do any of them in ways that would be edifying to others has to be the sense of being a servant. 
And so here we see Paul casting aside self-importance, selfish ambition, and vain conceit, all in favor of this kind of holistic mutuality where he sees himself first and foremost in Christ, but he sees himself essentially with Timothy and sort of in the midst of and with the church. And so Paul's seeing that in Christ, they're all equals. They all have the same master and the same ministry. Paul's not monopolizing all the attention. In fact, he gives attention. He, he calls out. I mean, he's this, like, like, right, this great apostle, you know, maybe the second most um, famous person in the New Testament. But he doesn't suck all the oxygen out of the air. He actually says to the ministers in the church, to the overseers and the deacons, they, they get included in, in Paul's imagination. And so belonging to Jesus alone, that sense of being a servant, Paul then is free. And thus his apostleship was not for himself or his personal brand, but it was for the sake of others. I don't remember the exact year. It was in the very late 80s, maybe 88, 89. I was, this was when I was working for Vineyard Churches. I was commissioned to do a rather lengthy study of evangelism and to try to help the vineyard figure out how we could um, excel in evangelism. And as a part of that, uh, I happened to know at the time Billy Graham's director of crusades. And he arranged for me to be able to spend four days with Graham and his team behind the scenes, just you know, being with the team, being with Billy, being with the team is one of the greatest, you know, gifts I've ever had in my life. But I say that to you to say, when I came away from that experience, I didn't come away with the sense of Billy's fame. Although you probably are aware that for generation, well, a, a generation or two now, for decades, I just saw a poll actually uh, just a few weeks ago. If you ask who are the most famous people in the world, uh, since about 1948 or 49, he's been in the top two or three or the top five for all those years. I mean, he's obviously a deeply famous man. But here's what I remember. We were in the Kingdom in Seattle, the old Kingdom. So I don't know what that sat, 50 or 60,000 people. And we were standing on the platform, you know, if you can picture it with its powder blue carpet and yellow mums, you know, all in the front. And there was only me and the, and the crusade director and Billy, Bev, and Cliff standing on the stage. And I forget whether it was Cliff or Bev, but one of them looked around at all these empty seats and said, golly, Billy, look at all the people the Lord's going to bring tonight. Now, they would have been about 70 years old then. Billy's 99. And they'd been at it for 40 or 45 years. And I just remember the utter innocence. Like, how would you still be impressed with people filling seats when you've been watching it happen for 40 years, 45 years? But there was this boyish innocence to those guys. And then at another moment, we were um, down in one of the tunnels underneath the stadium, and we were walking down this corridor. I remember there was this young man leaning against the wall. He's probably 25 or 30. And we walked by, and he reached out to Billy, and he, he started to say, like, oh, you know, Billy, you know, I forget, but complimenting him, you know, profoundly. And I remember seeing this sort of pain come into Billy's eyes and him putting his hands on the shoulder of that young man and saying, oh, please, you know, I don't remember exactly what he said, but sort of like, this isn't about me. You know, this is, this is about what, this is about God. Well, there's no cameras there. He wasn't playing to any audience. There was, again, three or four people standing around. Same thing on the stage, but there was a sense of himself, and this is what I'll never forget about him, was I think in his own mind, he was never more than a North Carolina farm boy who God was using. Now, he was just a servant, that that was his sense of himself. Yes, this has turned into big crowds, and yes, this has turned into audiences with 
queens and prime ministers and presidents and heads of state. And yes, I get that. You know, it's turned into this big sort of machine, this big evangelical, you know, middle 20th century evangelical machine. But Billy's sense of himself was, I am a servant. And I want to commend to you this morning that the one thing the revelation of Christ does in the hearts of sincere followers of Jesus is it turns them into servants. Servants of this amazing manifestation. Well, continuing in verse one, and don't worry, we're not going to stay there all morning. <laughs> Paul says he's writing to people who are holy. That uh, is a word that we normally think of as saints. But it doesn't mean here people who have like special personal piety. It's a bit more of a technical word that arises out of a narrative that means these are people who are set apart. They're designated and marked out as God's special people who then do pursue transformation, but we don't think of saints the way we think of here as someone so got made a saint because of their deep piety. This is different. This is people who God has called apart for himself so that they're holy in Christ. That is to say they're holy as the fullness of all the Messiah is and does is worked through them. And if you look at your text, that they are wholly set apart in Philippi. And that's very important because the gospel, the revelation of God in Christ, though it creates people who are highly differentiated, saints means um, sort of called apart from. So there is, there is a sense in which differentiation is in view here. But it's a differentiation that always stays connected to the world. So these aren't just saints sort of conceptually, but they are saints in their city, in their time, and in their place. Well, I think a third, third sense in which we're helped to see how a, a self is made through the revelation of Christ is if you look at verse 5, Paul commends them for their partnership with him in the gospel. Well, partnership, those of you who've been in the church a long time, you'll know uh, this word. Partnership there translates the Greek term koinonia. And when you think of koinonia, you might think of things like small groups, or uh, when I was young, we used to call them kinship groups. That was a, a way of getting at this word. You might think of fellowship or community, but it doesn't mean that in this text. Here it means something like, you along with me have a really keen interest in the grace and gospel business that we're doing together. And that this, this is a very practical thing. It's, it's frankly financial. I mean, some scholars see Philippians as basically a thank you note. That the Philippians, hearing that Paul was in prison, ancient prisoners often had nothing to eat. The, the, like the, you know, we, when you think of prison, you think of metal trays going through a slot, right, in bars. Well, ancient prisons weren't like that. You didn't necessarily ever have anything to eat if someone didn't bring you something to eat. And so the Philippians were taking care of him in that sense. And so it was, a, it was a very rich kind of materialistic sort of thing, meaning it wasn't just ideological or conceptual. It wasn't merely relationship or community in that sense. It was like they were in business together. They were giving practical help, support, and care. And, and yeah, this was attached to a sympathetic attitude, but their prayers led to this kind of sacrifice that was motivated by the gospel. And then in verse 6, we see a self that's created by or rooted in eschatology. Now, eschatology just simply means um, when it's all said and done, when this is all finished, when it's all completed. Where is this going? And so when Paul says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ, it's meant to give us an imagination for the powerful pull or orientation of eschatology, how our lives are being pulled towards something. 
And this, I think, is a very important formational thought because I know that for many of you, when you think of your own discipleship to Christ, when you pay attention to your own life, you, you can quickly see and feel brokenness. Your sin is always right before you. Your imperfections is always right before you. Uh, for some of you, this leads to you know, beating up on yourself, to guilt trips and shame. And, and when we're looking at our past only, or our present brokenness, and we don't see where all this is heading, I think we lose a great power, a great assist in our own discipleship to Jesus. And Paul, Paul's a number of things, but one of the things he is, is a great eschatological thinker. I mean, the, the completion of Christ is constantly in his mind. It's in the background. If it's not forward in the text, it's background in the text all over the place. So that... There's this, as I said, this pool that, it's, that, that eschatology, that consummation isn't just about judgment, but it's about completion. It's about fulfillment. And in a sense, this is Paul's idea of transformation, that what we're meant to be doing in our formation in Christ is to be being the people of the future. In a sense, you could say living the life of heaven, living that life of the future in the present in any circumstance. Next, I, I notice in the text, verse 9, a self-rooted in genuine ethics. As Paul says, may your love abound more and more in the knowledge and depths of insight. And what Paul's viewing here is, is that you may know, kind of broadly speaking, the general will of God. And that under that, you'd be able to discern what's best in the hectic issues of everyday living. That you'd learn to have deep insight into the way God's world truly is that you'd come to have spiritual judgment knowing the difference between good and evil. Now you just think of the rhetoric in our society today. Just a simple thing like, uh, is legalizing pot okay or not? One of the leaders in the diocese sent me a text this week saying, um, can I move to California and start a church? <laughs> or human sexuality or various economic or racial issues. I mean, right, you, there's just, everybody's got this loud perspective on everything and Paul sees that it's possible to come to have a knowledge and depth of insight that's rooted in God, love of God, and love of others. I think what Paul's picturing is that we would grow to come to the place where we could see the true nature of things, that we could come to see what really matters, that we'd have a sense of values and priorities, and that these would give birth to practices that would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And then kind of going back to what we saw in verse 1 and verse 12, again, we see a self that's rooted in selflessness, where Paul says, what has happened to me, that is to say being put in prison, has actually served to advance the gospel. And so note the, the, the unselfishness there is that he sees himself as a servant of the gospel and that the gospel is going out so that for Paul, essentially, all is well. I mean, his joy and passion is the progress of the plan of God. And this is very similar to what we see in, you know, Genesis 50 in the attitude of Joseph, who, you know, comes to the point where he says to his family, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And for Paul, of course, the, you know, the great apostle of the lordship of Jesus, he certainly would have in mind here that Jesus is Lord, not the forces that imprisoned him. Right? Lying behind a badge and a gun of a modern-day policeman is the force and will of society. Right? Society makes laws. Policemen arrest those and police women 
arrest those who are breaking the laws. And then we've got a, you know, a judiciary system. But lying behind that are, for Paul, principalities and powers. And so Paul doesn't just see a chain and a guard or a chain and a wall, but he sees past it and says, the powers that enforce this chain aren't Lord. The powers that this guard has, though they're real, or this hook in a rock wall that holds me there, it's real, but it's not fundamental. It's not, it's not ultimate. It's derived power, and derived power that has been misused. But Paul says, nevertheless, Jesus is Lord, and I live into that, and I live from that. We'll see in weeks to come, or next week, that Paul says, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In verse 27 of this letter, Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a matter worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then we'll see in a few weeks that famous sentence where Paul says, my sense of myself is I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and a participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then lastly, if you look at verse 13, I see a self at peace through confidence in God. Where Paul says, as a result, it's become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. That is to say, as Paul was linked to soldier after soldier as they changed shifts about every four hours, that over a period of weeks or months, we don't know how long Paul was in prison, but over a period of time, kind of all the guards had said to him, what are you here for? Did you kill somebody? Did you steal something? And Paul would say, no, I'm, I'm in chains for Christ. And so all the guards hear this, and then it kind of leaks out, you know, through gossip, you know, into guards' families and friends. And so Paul's picturing that as he explains Christ to people and why he's in chains, that from the guards and this sort of community gossip, the gospel was going out. And this, I think, is the spiritual art of seeing God's good purposes working out in the difficulties of life. Now, this is tricky, so I want you to pay some special attention here. This isn't denial. I mean, the, the adversity for Paul was real and painful. So Paul's not saying that suffering and evil are good, nor is he saying that God's the author of it. But he's saying something like God transforms it for good. Now, again, this doesn't mean that all the difficulties of understanding God and suffering are set aside and they're suddenly solved. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that Christians are meant to wear fake smiles and pretend that hardship is pleasant. No, Paul actually names and acknowledges things like prison. I hate going into prisons. When I was a really young minister, I used to have a prison ministry at a pre-Civil War prison in West Virginia. It was like a dank, dark, horrible building. It was like going into something like, it's hard to explain. It was dirty and old and built out of stone. There was just not the slightest thing pleasant about it at all. And you know, you'd go in and a door would slam behind you. And you'd go in and another door slams behind you. And you go in again and another door slams behind you. And you just, suddenly you realize you're in this bowels of this place that nobody would be there if they didn't have to be. They're, they're horrible places. Paul names it. He names his chain. He names the guard. He names the gospel adversaries who are preaching the gospel for wrong motives. But then he goes on to say, that he's amazed that God is using it for his own ends. Now, if we, we were to think about modern Christianity, then probably most of you know the story of how the gospel 
just ran wild over China when China was trying to shut it down. Or Cold War Marxism in various places of the world, where again, they were trying to suppress all religion in, in favor of atheism. And we all know now that it didn't work at all. I don't remember exactly when this study was done, but a well-known uh, United Methodist scholar named Thomas Oden did a study of religion in um, Cuba, again, in post-World War II Cuba. And, uh, and Thomas was only measuring Methodism, but this would, I think, apply to everybody else. And what Odin found was after 35 years of religious oppression and miserable economic conditions, I mean, Castro used to say things like, if you show you're religious at all, you can't get a job, you can't go to school. People were threatened with long prison sentences. And what Odin found was that Methodism grew in those decades from the, a few of just 6,000 members to over 50,000 members. Well, why? Well, what he found was that young and old, men and women, different ethnicities, they grew weary of an officially imposed atheism. And they hungered for a more satisfying answer to the meaning of life. So that four decades after Castro's communism, of his taking away of opportunities and threatening these prison sentences, it couldn't snuff out the church. And again, this doesn't mean that evil is good or that suffering's good. It just means that God is great at transforming it. And that while we work in his name to alleviate evil and suffering, he's also transforming it. For Paul, it just meant that my chain is real, the guard is real, the setting is real, but what's more real or equally real is that God is working through my chains. And the gospel is actually going out, as he said in Ephesians, because God is able to do more than we can ever envision or ask. So I think what's in view here as we think of the creating of a self is a perspective where Paul's able to make sense of a certain scene in a movie by placing it in the context of the whole story. And this is not just wishful thinking. It's single-minded, deep conviction rooted in the Jesus story. So now, you know, you, you can't think of doors slamming behind you as you go into the bowels of a prison. But you can think of Judas in the garden. Physical violent arrest. Drug away. Mock trials. Beating, mocking, scourging, dragging the cross out to Golgotha, nailed to the cross, crucified, dead, buried, but then resurrection. And God takes all of that that's real and brutal and horrible and evil and real life human suffering, and God transforms it into the salvation of the world. Now just think of that imagination and picture Paul seeing that in the links of his chain. Paul knows the Jesus story. And he just knows that this is a very real thing. I'm actually bound to this garden. I can't just go wherever I want. So it's something like house arrest. This is real. But in the same way, Paul knows that God transformed the suffering of his own son. God is transforming Paul's suffering so that the gospel is going out. Now, lastly, our gospel reading reminds us this morning that this revelation of Christ, this epiphany, this manifestation of God, has always called for human choice because like you can't unsee it, right? You know that saying, oh my God, how am I supposed to unsee that? Well, you can't unsee this Jesus story and having seen it, then, you know, in the words of the famous poet, two roads diverge and one always has to choose. And so if you look at your gospel passage this morning, Jesus says, 
Whoever works at trying to find his life outside of this story will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I just want to suggest to you that is precisely what Paul is experiencing. In the losing of his life in prison, and as people mocked his gospel, trying to make it harder on him in prison, he was actually finding his life. He was finding his sense of himself. He was finding a sense of self. You might say a Christian self. Well, those of you who are regulars here know that normally after a message, we have a time of quiet. In Advent, we switched it up a little bit and we had a time of praying for each other as a way to just sort of teach ourselves to respond to God's word. And in Epiphany, we're gonna do something a little different. In Epiphany, we're gonna have sort of in quotes or in italics, altar calls. And I don't really mean an altar call. But what I mean by that is at the end of every message, I'm gonna help guide you through of what you heard, how do you need to respond? What is, what is sort of, you know, if you were to come and to lay your life on an altar, and to lay it down, to lose your life so that you could find it in Christ, what might that be? And this morning, I just want you to sort of plainly, basically, see the essentialness of choice. In these words of Jesus, who says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So now as you have a moment of quiet, to what do you hear the Spirit asking you to respond? Is there a change of mind? Is God calling for a change in this current set of your will? Is there something to let go of or begin? Is there something maybe in a death to self in which ironically you would find your true self? Is there a place where maybe you find yourself desiring to follow Jesus in some different sort of way? and thereby, in the epiphany of Christ, finding yourself.